Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called The Prayers of King David. So turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Despair or Delight? Psalm 13 to 21, well, they're all psalms of King David. See, these psalms, like so many of the psalms of David, are poems or hymns of him learning to trust God when the struggles are great, that they threaten to crush him or seek his undoing. Anyone who's ever studied the life of David, you know, this kind of thing isn't surprising. David knew victories and successes to be sure. Indeed, David knew what it was like to reach the very heights of victory but he also knew what it was like to be overwhelmed by dangers and troubles so that one might have thought that he was approaching disgrace and ruin. And I think it's because of this that so many people have found comfort in reading David's Psalms. For there is no one who hasn't suffered. Indeed, there is no one who's not wondered if their troubles have not become so great that they wonder if they're gonna make it. This is especially so for Christians. Hebrews 12, verse 7 reminds us that it is for discipline that we must endure hardships. And in these hardships, we know that God is treating us as sons, disciplining us and shaping our character. But what should we say when our hardships are so overwhelming that we think we can't endure? And if that is you, so that what you have had to endure has gone on not for days, but for years, and you can see no end to it. Well, Psalm 13 is written for you. So let's read it. Psalm 13 has just six short verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, this psalm is short, but what is said can't easily be forgotten. For our purposes, let's notice that the six verses here can be divided into three parts. Verses one to two is the cry of David when the troubles are so great that he's on the verge of despair. And verses 3 to 4 is David's prayer. And then verses 5 to 6 is David's affirmation that he's not lost hope, but instead that his faith continues to trust in God. So let's take it one section at a time. Let's consider first David's despair. That's in verses 1 to 2. And you'll notice that the words, how long, well, that's repeated not twice, as you might expect in two verses, but rather four times. And furthermore, the cry, how long, doesn't mean that David wants a time when the troubles are over. Of course, he might want that, but the words, how long, as it's used here, conveys that David has become impatient. It seems unreasonable to him that an altogether wise and all-powerful and loving God, who had chosen David as his servant, would let things get this bad. And not just this bad but that it would simply carry on without any reasonable end to his sufferings in sight. Now, please don't, when you read this, think that only David went through this. Jeremiah the prophet not only witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, 
But he also lived at a unique time in history when the Babylonians were destroying one nation after another, and Jeremiah knew that God was using the Babylonians to bring judgment on the nations, and yet to witness such carnage seemingly was more than he could bear. And so Jeremiah 47 verse 6 has him crying out, Ah, sword of the Lord, how long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. How long must this carnage go on? Or we might think about the prophet Habakkuk's complaint before God, and that's in Habakkuk 1 verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? If you don't know the context of that passage, Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah. He was looking out at the ever-increasing wickedness and societal deterioration of Jerusalem, and he wanted to know why God just seemed to let it get worse. And of course, God has not done nothing. He was raising up the Babylonians to punish Israel, the very people of which Jeremiah would later say, how long must they go on punishing? Now, those words, how long, remind us that the ways of God are sometimes unsearchable, far beyond our ability to understand at the present moment. But that doesn't take away from the misery of the man or woman who cries out to God, how long? So let's have a look at those four times when David cries out, how long? The first time is in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So the first of the how long statements are about the experience that David has, that it seems to him that God is paying no attention to his sufferings. Of course, David doesn't think, nor should we, that God is forgetful or that there are things that have occurred or relationships God has had with people that he simply can't remember. I mean, David means this not as a theological truth, but rather as an experience. We get the sense that David's been calling out to God and God has not been answering. He cries and hears his own cry and then he waits and the only sound from heaven is a deafening silence. It feels like God can't remember who David is. Let's go to the second how long and that one's found also in verse 1. How long will you hide your face from me? There's an example here of Hebrew parallelism. The Hebrews would say a line and then they would repeat what they had just said using different words to say the same thing. But the different words are not just a mere repetition. The different words give a greater meaning to the line that's already expressed. And so the words, how long will you hide your face from me? Well, that gives us a mental picture. It's not that God feels like he doesn't remember David. You know, but when David cries to him, instead of facing him to hear what David has to say and and why he's suffering, well, God turns his face, looks in the other direction, determined not to hear what David has to say. So please don't think David to be irreverent, because as we're going to see, he's anything but. But he's trying to come to terms with the fact that, that God's not been answering him. And so we now come to the third how long statement. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You know, these words indicate that David's thought life had become painful, filled with turmoil. No doubt he continues to go over the same event over and over again. Indeed, he can't stop thinking about what has occurred to him, and the repetition of his thoughts is further cause of his deep sorrow. He says this happens all the day. He means that even when he would escape his own troubles, he just can't. His thoughts have become oppressive, and try as he might, he can't stop thinking about what has occurred. But now we might be wondering, what exactly did occur to David? 
And it's that last how long that does describe it. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And there we have it. David has an enemy. Does little good to guess as to who that enemy was. Indeed, any study of David's life will tell us that he had many enemies, but in this case, this particular enemy did have the upper hand. It looked like the enemy had utterly triumphed over him. Whatever had occurred, an outsider would surely conclude David's been defeated. The use of the term exalted seems to give the impression that the enemy is crowing like a rooster, letting everyone know that he's bested David, and David's only response has been to call out to God, and God's response has been silence. You know, I wonder if, as you hear these words, that it's painful for you to hear this. Perhaps some of you know what it's like from your own experience. You've been overwhelmed by someone who's evil, and God's not rushed to your side. Everyone's watching and has come to the same conclusion. David was weaker than he seemed, and God has not come to his aid. And that's what they said about you as well. And consequently, the despair you feel is crushing. And even though you might wish to run from it, your way has been blocked. You're caused by the hand of none other than God himself to witness the humiliation of complete defeat. And from that, you cry out, how long? Yeah, we let that thought settle for a moment and wonder, how can this matter be resolved? And with that, David moves us to the second section of this very short psalm. This is a picture of David praying. And interestingly enough, David has not stopped praying. God may be silent, but David does not doubt that despite of how he might feel, there's a theological reality that's much greater than his feelings. The reality is that God does hear and that God does love his servant. And so let's hear David pray for help. And as David prays, notice he has two requests. And the first request, that's found in verse 3, is that God would answer David before David dies. David seeks resolution while he's still in the land of the living. This request has led some to think that David might have been praying this while he's suffering an illness, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think David, like Job, notices that as he suffers, one day after another, his days are passing away. I mean, how much time does he actually have? Or to put it another way, is his life running out before relief can be found? And it's here that many who now hear my voice will say, that's exactly how I feel. My life is taken up in suffering. Is that all there will be for me? It's no secret that in today's society, we're inundated with a chorus of voices trying to shape our lives. They seek to influence our purchases, entertainment, political stance, moral standards, and daily activities. And if we try to bend to them all, we'll lead diffused, dizzy lives. So who is the umpire of life? Well, God is. His voice matters above all others. And Back to the Bible Canada exists to emphasize the centrality of God's voice, God's Word. That is why this month we're offering a booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This booklet does not promote defiance or apathy, but is a call to humbly submit to the voice of God. So to request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible .ca. And don't hesitate, because supplies are limited.
we've been entering deeply into the sufferings of David, and when we left off, we can say that at the very least, David was praying. Yeah, the prayer was so plaintive that we can scarcely listen, yet nonetheless, David is praying. He asked God if he is to suffer and run out of life in suffering. But David has a second prayer, and this one is equally difficult. David seeks relief from God, and he says, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. We've already noticed that David's enemy is a braggart. He's not gracious in victory. He's talking trash. I prevailed over David. Or at least, if David were to die before this matter with the enemy is resolved, the enemy would spend the rest of his days bragging of his victory and rejoicing that God never rescued his servant. The rejoicing in the enemy camp would never end. And David sees these two matters, how quickly his days pass and how soon when the enemy who has acted in wickedness will have total victory. And he tells God about it. Of course, God has noticed. But David wants to tell God that he's noticed as well. You know, it's possible that Psalm 13 could have ended there. I mean, after all, we, we read to the end of this psalm and we can see that the matter is not resolved. But we would take hope from reading the story of David's life from First and Second Samuel, and we would know that in the end, David did prevail over his enemies and that he died an old man. And as he longed for in Psalm 23, that he should dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David did die, but not before God had vindicated his servant. And so we might well say, the end of verse 4, that David had prayed, and then at some time in the future, God had answered. In that sense, we might end our study by noting that David had prayed how long, and even though he was not given the answer to that question, we do know that at some time that question was answered. And that should give us hope as well. It might seem that the night lasts so very long and that the daylight is not coming, but it's also true that the daylight does come. I think in some sense this psalm would indeed be complete had it ended with verse 4, but on the other hand, this psalm is not complete at verse 4. For what would we then say? Are we to be miserable until God rescues us? Is all suffering the same? Can it be said that there are indeed some who suffer in despair and some who suffer in hope? Is that it? I mean, please don't make the mistake in saying it doesn't matter, for isn't the suffering exactly the same for the one who is hope and the one who has abandoned it? But just a little thought tells us that's not so. And so we come to the last section of this psalm, the third section, which is a section intended to tell us that while David suffered before David was delivered and before God answered him, that David did not fall into despair. Look at the very beginning of verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And I think those words can only be spoken by a redeemed man or woman. Look, let's remember what David has been saying. An evil enemy has been destroying me so that I see no relief in sight until the day I die. And from the vantage point of what I'm experiencing, while I cry to God, it seems like God turns from me and says not one word, neither good or bad. But says David, I'm not destroyed, for I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now, just so we don't miss it, the words here translated as steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word hesed. I've trusted in your hesed. Go with me to Exodus 34, verse 6, and that's one of the great landmark passages in the Bible. Moses, the man of God, has gone up Mount Sinai to meet with God, and there on the mountain he takes two tablets of stone in which God will write his Ten Commandments. And as Moses goes up, the Lord descends in a cloud, and Moses realizes he's standing in the presence of God. 
And with that, we come to Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear the words, the Lord is abounding, overflowing in a super overflow of abundance with steadfast love, with chesed. Chesed is the love of God found in the covenant he makes with his people. God binds himself to his promise, a promise he makes with his own. He will be merciful to his own. He will be gracious to those that belong to him. And more, he will forgive iniquity, sin, and transgression. Well, in short, wherever we read hesed in the First Testament, we should then know that the love of hesed is not completed until it's ultimately fulfilled in the cross of Jesus, where Jesus takes our sins from us and seals us with the Holy Spirit, making us permanently his own. That's the covenant. Now back to Psalm 13. David may have been hard-pressed, but he says, I'm never going to stop trusting in the love of God through which God has bound himself to me through his covenant. No matter how many enemies tramp on my head and boast, no matter how silent heaven appears to be in relation to my plight, I'll never lose confidence in the covenant love of God, a love that was ultimately sealed in the blood of his precious son. Nothing may make sense in the moment, but the blood of the covenant eventually fulfilled in Jesus makes sense, and I'm going to trust in that. Now, that's just the beginning. David then moves from this confidence that God makes a covenant with him, that he will not and cannot break that covenant, and he goes on to say something about the future. Remember, he's been uncertain about the future. His days are passing away with no relief. And he's been praying that his wicked enemy won't have the chance to dance on his grave and boast about his victory. Yeah, that's the prayer. And then reflecting on the covenant, David says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice that this is said in the future. It's not David saying, I'm rejoicing because I'm saved from sin and accepted before God. I mean, he knows he is. Indeed, that promise is found in the word has said. But David knows that his end will not be with his enemies dancing on his grave. His end will be when God provides him a salvation at some time in the future. So what futures David have in mind? I mean, one way of interpreting this is that David is convinced that his enemy will not dance on his grave. Rather, God will spare him from this. And indeed, that's surely what occurred. And if we think about it, this is also what we find in the New or the Final Testament. Think, for instance, of what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. He tells the church there to pray for him that he might be delivered from evil men. And then thinking about that, Paul promises the church there that also have to face evil men, that the Lord will protect them from the evil one. But we need look no further than Jesus. You know, evil men did nail him to a cross. But God delivered him from nothing less than death itself. Yeah, David may have been looking to a future salvation in which he triumphs over his enemy in this life. For surely that is what David experienced. But think of the words of Jesus given to the church in Smyrna. Revelation 3 verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Listen, every true child of God who's faithful to Jesus, yet being persecuted, can say that. In the end, all those who have been unfaithful to the Lord, or enemies of the Lord, 
they will be forced to acknowledge whom the Lord has loved, and David is certain of that. The future in the end does not look ominous to him. And so as the psalm ends, we find David still not having been delivered. That's going to come in the future. But we have a picture of David under stress. And in his stress, he's not cursing the bad turn of events in his life, nor the deeds of those who are evil, nor the fact that up till now God has not answered his prayer. And just so we're clear here, David has not curled up in a ball, and he's not fallen into despair. Instead, we find David doing something very different. Listen to verse 6, for it's a lovely way to end this psalm. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Yeah, just so that we're clear, David's experience didn't lead him to say that. And to be even more clear, lest you, my dear listener, misunderstand this point, if you're relying on what you experience to give you joy or sorrow, I fear that you'll be one of those who does roll up into a ball on the floor and get into the fetal position and begin to whimper and be in despair. But on the other hand, if you allow your theology to lead you, the promise God has made in his chesed, in his covenant with you, then in the midst of the darkness, like Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi, having been beaten until their backs are raw and bleeding, that you can, like them, sing to God even in a dungeon, for God will by no means forsake his people. He may discipline his people. He may seek their long-term good through a great and fearful valley of suffering, but to abandon his people, such a thought is unthinkable. God will never forsake his people, for he has bound himself to us through his covenant. So join David, would you, in the midst of suffering, sing. John, thanks so much for your message, and I'm looking forward to this series. Let me ask you right off the top, though, and, and this may be an age-old question, but, but should we understand despair as the enemy of faith? I, in many ways, it is the enemy of faith. I mean, faith really gives hope uh, in the midst of very difficult circumstances. So I think we can say that uh, despair is that sense we feel within ourselves in, in which uh, we look at our present circumstances and we think there's no hope for the future. And, uh, and faith tells us, regardless of how dark the days are, God has planned something different for us. So I, I think in many ways we can. I mean, on the other hand, it can simply be a psychological response. But in the end of the day, we would pray that despair would be but a moment and that our faith would again uh, take over for us and, and lead us to those moments where our hope is undiminished and we're looking forward to God doing something wonderful. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. God has assigned Back to the Bible Canada a crucial mission to faithfully share the truth of the Bible so that others might be discipled into a deeper relationship with God. Gary recently wrote, thank you for always teaching truth from the Bible as it's meant to be seen, not just flowery, feel-good stuff. What an encouragement. In a world where false messages are louder than ever, we must remain steadfast and committed to amplifying God's truth above all else. And we rely on your faithful support gifts and prayers to continue airing trustworthy Bible teaching across Canada through as many means as possible. 
To donate and help support Back to the Bible Canada's mission or to share your testimony, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 today.